From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, the West sanctions sever Russia's economy from much of the world, and the wider fintech community responds to the invasion of Ukraine. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 608 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Sim Rai, Senior Customer Strategist. Great to have you here for your first news show, Sim. How are you doing? Thank you, Benjamin. I'm doing well, thank you. And of course, uh, we're joined by some very special guests. First up, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Jan Rancher, partner at Anthemis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jan. Can you give our audience a quick recap of you and Anthemis, please? Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, my name is Jan. I'm a partner at Anthemis, as you mentioned. We're a fintech-focused VC fund investing in fintech startups across mostly US and Europe. Thank you and welcome. Also making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Claire Gambardella, Chief Customer Officer of Zopa. Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. We'll get into your news a little bit later, but can you give us the elevator pitch on Zopa, please? Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the Chief Customer Officer at Zopa. So I bring together um, everything to do with customer channels, so brand, customer experience and comms. Um, Zopa is a um, fintech, which is a recently licensed bank. We got our license about 18 months ago, and we really specialize in saving and lending products. Well, welcome. And with that, let's get into the news. So like everyone, uh, we've watched the terrible Russian invasion of Ukraine over the last week. Um, So we're giving over the first part of our show to talk about this from a financial services and fintech perspective. Um, Just briefly, you know, from a human perspective, we know it's an incredibly tough time and that there's a huge amount of suffering going on in Ukraine, as there is in a couple of other countries in the world. And we want to offer all of our support to all of those who've been affected. So our first story was covered in the Wall Street Journal and pretty much all media um, about the West sanctions severing Russia's economy from much of the world. Western nations dropped economic sanctions of historic scale on Russia that are hobbling its financial system and effectively reversing the past 30 years of post-Cold War engagement. The European Union, the United States and their allies have agreed to cut off a number of Russian banks from the main international payment system, SWIFT. SWIFT, or the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, snappy name, um, is a secure messaging system for large cross-border payments, enabling international trade. In response to the invasion of Ukraine, these sanctions and the the elimination of Russian banks from SWIFT have reverberated through Russia's economy, which has been largely cut off from the West. These sanctions have also hindered the ability of Russia's central bank to manage the country's financial system and mitigate some of the damage. Western banks and businesses, including firms like Visa, MasterCard, H&M and Apple, have added to government's actions by halting their own operations in Russia and sales to Russian companies. And the removal from SWIFT is deemed to be a severe curb because almost all banks use the system to move money internationally. Yeah, and I'm going to come to you first. There's been a lot of conversation um, about SWIFT, which you know most people, you know, most of listeners know of a sort of as a fairly boring part of the the financial plumbing. But suddenly, it's on the the front pages. Uh, you covered it in a th- Twitter thread recently. Why is it Why is it so important? Can you give our listeners a sort of simple breakdown of what SWIFT is and why it matters? Absolutely. So, I think it's important. Like at the simplest, SWIFT is the specialized email messaging protocol for banks. This is how they communicate on each other 
on a certain number of things, which includes payment, but many other things as well. Um, like if they want to buy and sell shares from each other, if they want to service a loan between each other, if they want to trade, uh, physical stuff, uh, commodities and other aspects between each other, they all use SWIFT. And uh, messaging is both the layer to transmit the message, but also the way you speak. And there is a protocol that says, if you want to sell shares, this is how you write it. This is how I receive it. This is how I confirm it. So by shutting off SWIFT, you remove basically the, all the international phone lines of a Russian bank to speak with its counterpart. And that not just moving money, right? But that's also exchanging shares. How do you pay interest and all these things that are happening behind the scene? Um, so it's very severe. And I think... The other aspect is that Swift is not just about today. You can send message about things that's supposed to happen in the future, right? You can do forward-looking trade. You can say, in a month's time, we'll exchange the shares, or in a month's time, you will return the capital of a loan to me, and we'll confirm it then. So there is a, a whole moment, a number of outstanding transactions between banks that are forward-looking, if you remove SWIFT, you remove the ability to settle those transactions that are forward-looking as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's shutting down SWIFT is not a click of a button thing, because for both the Russian banks and the non-Russian banks, they have to understand what their exposure is. What does that mean for them? Like, Should they expect capital to come or not to come from Russia? And I think the reality is no one knows at an instant time what their exposure is. Um, and if you shut down this old view, you need to suddenly decide, what is my treasury going to look like? What is my exposure doing? What is the impact for me as a bank? And it's, it's why this is not a trivial matter of like stopping down messaging because there is a wide influence on how bank can think about their financial future and plan for it across the board, right? So how difficult is this for um, the, the sort of bankers or people working within banks in, in the rest of Europe or, or elsewhere in the world who are now no longer able to use the SWIFT messaging system to communicate with Russian banks? And of course, some of those Russian banks are themselves targets of sanctions. How much of a sort of nightmare is, I mean, obviously, nightmare is not really the right term considering what's happening in Ukraine, but how difficult is this for the banks um, that are dealing with Russia? What does this mean in practice? It's, I guess it's relative to the banks linked to Russia. Obviously, if you have a very small exposure, you do very little amount of business with Russia, your exposure is fairly small and you can deal with those volume more easily. But if you're like, you know, one of the European banks that does a lot with Russia, like Raiffeisen and others, obviously you have a huge amount of thinking to do in terms of understanding the exposure and also just what you have outstanding, what swift message I've sent, what is there live that I need to manage. And from a back office standpoint, this is really complicated. From the treasury standpoint, this is very complicated because the treasury of a bank is constantly moving targets of incoming and outgoing flow. And you suddenly you change the profile of incoming, incoming and outgoing. You need to select all the Russian flows decide what they're going to do or not. It's it's complex, very complex. And also, it has a lot of implication for the banks themselves in Europe. Like, it's, it's a sanction on the Russian banks for sure, but it's like 
a very complex matters on the banks to understand what is implies for them, right? And SWIFT is the messaging system. So SWIFT, so cutting the Russian banks or most of the Russian banks out of SWIFT obviously stops them sending those messages, as you said, but that doesn't actually necessarily stop the money movements, correct? Well, you would need to move the money differently. I mean, the money doesn't really move anyway. That's the thing. It's like yes, all... Yes, true. <laughs> so it's all accounting, right? So anything mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that ties to what's happening with the central bank, for example, right? It's like if it's rubble, never leaves rubble. Euros never leaves euro. But you have a certain number of balances that are matching each other, right? And so, so you could technically change the balances, but there is a ban on SWIFT, but there is also a ban on financial transaction with the banks, right? So it's not just like you cut the messaging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there is also mm-hmm. sanctions in terms of you can't do business with those banks. And cutting the messaging is the most fast and brutal, I mean, brutal, but very strong way of en- enacting that. But the sanctions are not on SWIFT, right? The, there is a ask to cut SWIFT. The sanctions are you can't do business with these people and these banks. And that's the sanction, and that's what prevents doing business. SWIFT is a really uh, fast enabler of doing that. Let's bring um, let's bring Claire and 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 Sim Sim into the conversation. By the way, I'm amused to hear you describing SWIFT as fast because often the complaint about SWIFT is it isn't as 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 fast as it like. But I think that's because of the, the sheer complexity. Anyway, um, Sim and Claire, let's bring you into the conversation. How how have you? seen this sort of affecting the the Russian population. I mean, we've we've seen a few pictures of sort of queues at ATMs and so on. What impact do you think this is starting to happen? Maybe I can go to, to Claire first and, and, and then to Sim. What, uh, what, what have you seen and, and heard about how this is affecting Russia? Well, I mean, I think like everybody, I've just been trying to consume as much sort of reputable news um, as I can. And also, we obviously have quite an international population at, at Zopa. So there are members of our staff who are Ukrainian and also who are Russian, um, who we've been connecting with a lot. So I think what I've heard uh, or seen is that there is definitely, this is starting to kind of create a bit of a run on some of the Russian banks. I think that there was definitely coverage of a lot of people um, wanting to get money, which will obviously cause some issues. Um, I also think that some Russian people are thinking about what that means for their future in Russia. So I've heard some people are saying what, that their family members are wanting to leave Russia um, and you know potentially join family members elsewhere in the world. But these are, you know, these are anecdotal stories. And I think it will be, uh, you know, time will tell, I suppose, how big an issue this poses within Russia for everyday people. But I think that's obviously a huge source of concern because, you know, it will be the day-to-day lives of Russians who, you know, as we all know, are very far removed from the decision-making of the of the regime that are probably impacted by some of these, uh, some of these sanctions. Yeah, Sim, what do you think? I mean, do you think there's a way of doing some of this without hitting the sort of ordinary Russian people on the street who, as Claire said, don't really have a lot of influence on what Putin does or doesn't do? To be honest, I, I think I wish there was a way there was um, a way to, to not impact the, the Russian population. But unfortunately, I think the reality is that they are being impacted. You know, Russia imposed capital controls and blocking like blocked residents from sending money to foreign bank accounts and restricting payments. And as Claire and Benjamin mentioned, there's been um, people queuing up at ATMs to take out people uh, to take out their savings, sorry, because they don't want to lose access to that cash. And I think, I think, 
Undoubtedly, it will impact the Russian population because earlier this week, we saw that the ruble crashed as much as 50% against the dollar and the stock market remained closed. Now, the ruble has suffered double-digit losses in the past in a single day, but only twice before. So once was during the, the 1998 Russian financial crisis and then again in late 2014 as a result of the annexation of Crimea. So I think bearing that in mind, I think undoubtedly it will impact the, the Russian population. And I'm not sure what there can be done to stop that. Do we think the the, the, the sanctions themselves will sort of will work in, in in terms of sort of hitting the Russian elite, you know, perhaps hitting hitting those around Putin? Um, or are there other ways around? I mean, yeah, no, you know, some people have been talking about you know blockchain and cryptocurrencies and alternative routes. Um, people have been talking about China and Russia collaborating on alternatives to SWIFT. Um, do you think that the so obviously in the short term closing down SWIFT has had a big impact? But do you think actually that will affect um, some of the, some of those sort of elites in Russia? I think that would affect them. I think the reality is that if you're very rich, you're less affected than a person on the street. Like so, it's not about avoiding or anything like that. It's if you have more assets. I mean, it's like any shock, right? The, the people that are going to suffer the most are the people that have less resilience in their life and that's going to be people that are going to be more impacted so i think before thinking about all this like avoidance or everything it's like by nature shock impacts the more fragile population first like it's just the basic simple aspect of that i don't think there is a way to avoid that um i I think the like the central bank of russia has increased their interest rate they've also notified the bank that they shouldn't increase the mortgage accordingly i mean they're trying to avoid um, impact on the population, um, but but I think the the way the massive shock is there is going to be we see their supply chain issue coming in with people not delivering anymore, uh, which would increase prices on staples and other things. So in any case, yes, this will this should and will impact people. I think the level of impact is based on the resilience of they have and. In reality, more fragile people are impacted first. Yeah, it's going to hit the uh, hit, hit hit Russian people uh, hard, though obviously not as hard as the Ukrainians, uh, uh, whose, whose lives are being destroyed. One last very quick question, perhaps on this, is um, that some, only some Russian banks have been included in the sanctions. Um, so, you know, some sort of prominent banks, someone like Tinkoff Bank, for example, as, as I understand it, has hasn't yet been um, targeted because it doesn't have strong links to the state. Um, why would some? Why would it be logical to leave some of the Russian banks out? Why not hit all of them? Does anyone have a perspective? I think the point is to try to find a balance in terms of hitting the government assets and the circles around putting assets, but as much as possible minimizing impact on the population. Right. So it's it's the balance that is. I think there is a interest I mean, to try to do that you don't shut off everything um, even let's say the, even the embargo with iron excluding certain things like medical uh, aspects and other stuff that's even in the strongest financial embargo there is always exception um, to avoid you know disrupting certain aspects that are too important right so you don't want to avoid like you don't want to stop medical equipment and uh, medication to avoid f- going to Russia and have impact in hospitals and things like that. So I think that's the balance that 
we don't talk about so much right now because it, there is a lot of impetus and, and, and emotion deservedly, right? But, but, but you can't, I mean, the complete cutoff of a country and a population is not, I think, advisable either because there are things that you don't want to impact. Um, and I think in every previous financial embargo, there has always been safe line around certain things. And I think, you know, there is a, an attempt at doing that. And obviously the second aspect is the gas uh, aspect is, is clear. Clearly there is exception around that. And the exception goes both ways. Uh, Europe needs energy. Russia needs the financial income as well for to preserve. So for example, if you block every financial flows, like Russian government can't pay their employees anymore. So you impact a massive percentage of the population who can't receive salaries. Do you want to do that? That's, you know, that's a question that people ask themselves and should ask themselves, right? So it's, it's the difficult part of this discussion is, yes, there is a strong emotional aspect. And yes, you should try to do as much as possible. The question is how blunt the weapon is and how do you want to manage with the bluntness? Yeah, that's a very well, well put. And I, there are a lot of difficult decisions taking place um, you know, across, across the West of how to, how to respond. Okay, let's move on to our, our next story then, which is a slightly more positive spin on, on this terrible story, which is about how the wider fintech community has, has responded to the invasion of Ukraine. And this has been you know, widely reported because there have been a number of different things um, done by different firms. So um, we've seen fintech companies responding with uh, things like supporting visas, shelter for refugees, funding, and so on. Um, so Zopa, where Claire is from, is planning to sponsor up to 50 working visas for eligible applicants in the UK, as well as fast-tracking the relocation of Ukrainians wishing to join their family members in the UK. Uh, the bank is going to provide relocation allowance of a month's salary for citizens who have received the right to work in the UK. Um, other companies, uh, such as the Netherlands-based uh, founders Ali uh, Nicknam of Bunk, Joris uh, Beckers of Picnic, and Robert Viss of Messagebird have set up a foundation called People for People to shelter refugees fleeing the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Uh, the initiative will help refugees from both Ukraine and Russia and is already equipped to accommodate refugees in hotels and apartments when and where needed. The People for People Foundation has also announced that they will supply Ukrainian refugees with free bank accounts, giving them an IBAN, an international bank account number, um, and a virtual payments card. Um, Revolut, whose co-founder and uh, chief technology officer Vlad Yatsenko is a Ukrainian national, is waiving transfer fees for sending money to a Ukrainian bank account and providing emergency relocation support for its 28 employees in the country. It's also been raising uh, money for the, for the Red Cross. Um, meanwhile, crypto trading platform Binance is donating $10 million to major intergovernmental organizations and local NGOs on the ground though it's ruled out restricting ordinary Russians um, from, from using the service. So we're going to find out a little bit more about Bunk's charitable initiative, People for People. Um, to do that, we reached out to the CEO and co-founder, Ali Nicknam, to ask why he felt compelled to act. Thank you for a great question. So I think war is a great tragedy and we all should try to do what we can as human beings to help other human beings out. And so we figured, okay, let's do something. And it started out with a very simple plan to try and get some people in safety, leveraging our network, 
we have an office in Bulgaria and Sofia and also some personal uh, contacts I have in Georgia to get people in safety there. And then when we posted this LinkedIn message, so many people reached out, so many people offered help, so many people asked for help in ways that we could not support, that things developed very quickly. And we decided to combine forces with a couple of other successful Dutch entrepreneurs, Robert Fiss from Message Bird and Joris Beckers from Picnic to start and establish a foundation that will look in an entrepreneurial and pragmatic way to see what we can do to help anyone we reasonably can. Claire, Zopa was one of the first fintech companies to announce an initiative um, in, in the wake of the invasion. How, how did that come about in, in Zopa? How did you move so fast? What, what sort of prompted you to react? I think um, we watched, as everybody did, the unfolding um, of the situation in Ukraine with real alarm, but also huge concern for the impact that we're starting to see on the Ukrainian population. Um, And so really the discussion started with what could this mean for our customers and our Zopa staff? And as I mentioned before, we do have some Ukrainian staff and also some Russian staff. So the first step for us was our people team very quickly kind of reaching out to them, connecting with them, making sure that they had the support they needed. Um, And then on Sunday, uh, the government had announced their intention to put in place uh, the ability for um, people from Ukraine to access visas more easily to come and join um, family members in the UK. And our chief people officer spotted that um, very quickly. She put together on Sunday a small working group from across the business to understand how we could use this to um, help to offer visas for um, people in technology, in finance, to come um, and work for Zopa. And along with that, obviously, trying to facilitate that through offering, as you said, um, a a moving allowance through expediting the process in a way that would help people who did want to try and leave Ukraine and and join family in the UK to have some certainty and to take away some of the, you know, the stress of that situation being very unknown in terms of their employment and, and their situation when they came to the UK. So it was a very sort of quick turnaround for us. Um, it's something which, you know, 50 visas is obviously, um, you know, a great start, but I would love to see more people across the fintech industry and the tech industry at large, um, thinking about these kind of opportunities so that we can make an an even bigger difference. What's been the response so far? So both from sort of Ukrainians uh, uh, or others, um, but also actually interestingly, to your point, have you, have other companies been in touch and been asking you about what you did and why you did it and how they can join you? Yeah, so I think we, first of all, um, we've definitely seen a very positive response from this and a huge amount of, you know, our staff and also our wider network getting behind this and sharing it. I think that other fintechs, as you mentioned, are getting involved now in a range of different ways, uh, which is really, really positive to see. Some of them looking at the visa option, but also looking at a number of other options which might be benefited to their business model. So I think what's important is that, you know, the industry does what it can and uses its capabilities um, to really try and improve the situation in any way possible for the Ukrainian people that are impacted. So I'm really pleased that the list that you mentioned at the beginning of this segment has, you know, become long and I think is growing day by day, which is fantastic to see. 
Yeah, well, well, well said. Um, how can people get in touch with SOPA directly about applying? Is that is that on your website? Yeah, so we obviously have our careers page, which is on our website, but we also have a bespoke email address, which is Ukraine support at Zopa.com. This is a way for anyone interested, either on their own behalf or on behalf of family members, to contact our people team directly, and they will expedite the process um, for people who are seeking these visas. And there's really two groups of people this is relevant for. It's uh, Ukrainians who are already in the UK who um, need to be able to sponsor the extension of their visa or indeed people within Ukraine. And this is why we're trying to really spread this message far and wide uh, who would like to apply from Ukraine. And, and you know, you mentioned um, the fact that we will fast track the process and offer them uh, also some, some moving al- allowance. But what we're also doing is giving them the chance to onboard remotely um, so that actually people can uh, can onboard to Zopra in a way that suits them, knowing that there is obviously a huge amount of flux and change in the situation. Thank you. Um, Sim, how, how do you think other fintechs should be reacting? What kinds of things have you seen? What kinds of things do you think other fintechs could or possibly should be doing? I think it's great, as we just talked about, how the wider fintech community have come together to provide visas, like Claire just mentioned, or have some more charitable efforts. But I think we also have to to recognize and give massive credit and kudos to to those fintech companies and tech companies who have tangibly tried to remove people from the situation by chartering planes and things like that. Like um, the founder of fintech Upswat, Dmitry Norenko, is financially supporting his Ukraine-based employees and their families some relocate and some stay to fight in their home country. So the company has paid things like relocation fees, plane tickets and housing up front. But for those employees who have decided to stay in the company, he's paying um, bonuses in addition to their salary and sending cash and things like that. And I think that's important. And I've also heard of Flow, the, the femtech company, actually like chartering planes to get people out or across borders and financing their relocation. And I think that's really great fintech leadership, which is quite needed right now. One one area there's been a bit of contention, I suppose, is in sort of things like cross border transfers, where we've seen some companies um, like I think Wise and Brex and so on trying to stop transfers to Russia or reducing transfers sort of into and out of rubles. And then there have other, been other companies saying, "Well, no, um, we shouldn't do that because that's that's um, affecting sort of ordinary Russians." Um, Jan, do you have a, a sort of a, a strong view either way on that? Is it is it helpful um, trying to sort of block or throttle sort of ruble transactions, or is that just punishing ordinary Russians? I think it's very hard to say. I mean, I am a view that you know there is also a notion that democratic countries work with a certain set of regulations and sanctions are not unitarily decided. Right there, obviously. Uh, have a legal framework around them. And I think, you know, that's one way to look at it is to be let apply the legal framework and then, and then doing more, I think, is is a difficult decision, I think. Because I, ordinary Russians, I think, have nothing to do with what is happening at the moment. Um, they're, they're, you know, stuck in this situation, obviously, in a way that is way less tragic than Ukrainian, but still not under their own will. And I think that's something to to consider and to think about in terms of what's going to come next, right? Because there will be a next to this. And I think um, it would be a shame for the Russian youth, for example, that they're, you know, considered in a different way 
for things that they haven't had any decision making on in any shape or form, right? So that's one last thing I'd like to touch on is is cryptocurrency. Now in this I'm not saying that this was a scenario that people who came up with cryptocurrencies were thinking about, but this is the sort of scenario you know we've seen in some other countries, you know Venezuela and so on, where there's been some adoption of cryptocurrency, you know where you've got a very volatile currencies or people having difficulty moving money across borders. Do we think we might see people in in Russia or indeed in in, in Ukraine um, trying to? I mean, assuming people in Ukraine have even got internet connections, but starting to sort of use cryptocurrency as a as a way of moving assets about, do we think that, that this might encourage crypto use? I, I, I mean, not in a good way, but I mean, do you think? Do we think crypto is an answer here for people? I think the difficulty. I mean, yes, potentially people will try to find crypto as a realm to protect themselves. I think the biggest question is going to be what governments are going to do to control the rubble to crypto rails, right? Because unless you're already in crypto. The only way you can use crypto as an off-rail is by, you know, moving your rubble into crypto. And that's the easiest point of control from the bank perspective, which is the same reason banks are, you know, limiting $10,000 potential exit from the user, from their, the, the Russians, right? It's the same principle. Um, there is a notion of... Uh, Having crypto as a safeguard and having crypto as something you can have control over in those situations, I think this will drive this notion forward in my mind. Okay. Thank you for your all of your thoughtful comments on these. You know, these are very, very tricky, tricky topics, and you know, there's no not, not right answers on a lot of these questions. So, thank you. Okay. Well, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back uh, very shortly. What role will blockchain play in the future of financial services? How are innovative fintechs expanding access to online banking in Africa? And would more bankers in orange jumpsuits change the way money laundering is perceived? These are just some of the big questions you'll explore on Uncover, the Comply Advantage podcast. Subscribe today and join them for conversations featuring the latest, fast-growing fintechs, product innovations, and financial crime challenges. Just search Uncover Comply Advantage wherever you get your podcasts. It's official. The British Bank Awards are back, and we are up for both the Pioneer of the Year and Consultancy of the Year again. But we cannot get there without your help. If you'd like to have your say and vote for us, please head to bit.ly forward slash vote for 11FS. That's bit.ly forward slash vote for 11FS. You can find the link also in the description. So welcome back. Uh, for the second half of the show, we're going to move away from uh, the, in- the invasion of Ukraine, but we'll continue to cover the implications of the invasion as best we can in, in coming weeks. So we're now going to move to another European story, which is about Klarna, um, which was reported in the Financial Times and other media. So Klarna's widening losses have been driven by its rapid expansion. So losses at the Swedish buy now, pay later provider Klarna soared last year as the company's rapid growth into new market drove up credit defaults. The fintech reported net losses of 4.5 billion Swedish kroner, which is about $470 million, for the fourth quarter of 2021, compared with $755 million in the same period the year before. So uh, losses increased sort of six or sevenfold. Full-year losses swelled to... 
7.1 billion kroner from 1.4 billion kroner in 2020. Credit defaults of 4.6 billion kroner up from 2.5 billion kroner in 2020 were a significant proportion of the losses. More than a third of these credit defaults came from the fourth quarter, which Klarna said reflected variances in provisioning for loan losses and seasonal growth during the holiday period. Klarna also said it had 147 million active customers in 2021, a 70% increase year on year. So Klarna had a busy year. Um, Have they gone too far? Claire, I'm tempted to come to you because um, Zopa has lending operations. You guys understand credit uh, pretty well. Um, do you think Klarna's expanded too aggressively? Is this? Do you think this was a deliberate strategy? Have they got their sums wrong? What do you think is happening? I mean, I think that what's uh, indisputable is that buy now, pay later has grown so significantly over the last few years. I mean, I think in the UK, uh, by now pay later spending doubled in 2021 versus 2020. And there has been a fundamental shift in expectation from consumers, because it's brought such a easy journey. Uh, And I think that that UK behaviour has undoubtedly been replicated, you know, elsewhere in Europe and more broadly, and that has provided huge opportunity for Klarna to expand, which they've obviously, you know, wanted to take advantage of. Um, I think that the challenge has been, obviously, and this is why um, there is so much discussion about regulation in the UK, the way in which that lending gets provided and the fact that it doesn't currently sit within the same rules around affordability um, that, for example, personal loans would be subject to. And, you know, that has some consequences for customers and potentially also is playing into the kind of credit losses that that we're seeing now uh, for Klarna. I personally think that there is a real opportunity to meet the in it, the customer need that we're very clearly seeing for you know easy access to credit at point of sale in a way which is probably better structured um, and maybe more in line with some of the regulation which is likely to come. Um, and I think what will be interesting for Klarna is you know what what that means for them in terms of their evolution. And I'm I'm very you know I'm positive that they're already thinking very actively around that. Sim, to pick up on Claire's point, do you think? Uh, do you think there is a need for for more regulation? Um, is, is buy now pay later causing consumer harm, or do you think it's actually just enabling people to get the stuff they want faster? Yeah, look, I think there is definitely a need for regulation in the buy now pay later industry. So just in the the US alone, for example, buy now pay later fraud grew by sixty six percent year on year between twenty twenty two and twenty twenty one. So all the good things like fast approval loans and speedy identity verification mechanisms and really loose credit checks have set the stage right for such activity. So right now, buy now, pay later is unregulated. So that means there's no unified industry-wide protocol to deal with fraud. So each provider uses its own set of fraud detection and prevention procedures and settles cases using its own policies. But when you're onboarding customers, that's pretty much the same. So the the things that people love about buy now, pay later, which is the speed, 
also makes it a problem in terms of fraud because conducting credit checks is done less thoroughly than with traditional credit products. And that's where the risk is born. So I think in terms of regulation, the main gap in buy now, pay later is being able to verify identities without adding high friction. And the information currently available to buy now, pay later providers through the credit bureaus is not sufficient to establish a strong identity. And therefore, that leads to a major exposure. So I think that's something that's going to have to change. Very interesting. Jan, um, as, as a sort of investor, do, you, do these losses matter? I mean, is this, is this actually good strategy on Klarna's part? You know, there's a bit of a, um, a, bit of a race on in buy now, pay later. You've got a firm, you've got afterpay, etc. You've got a whole bunch of buy now, pay later players trying to expand into the States and other markets. Is this, is this good strategy by Klarna? I mean, how, how do you look at this as an investor? The, the thing with lending is very hard to say. You like growing in lending is not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Giving money away for people is like the simplest thing in the world, like to grow, right? So you can show gross number, getting the money back and managing your risk correctly is the main problem. And so it's hard to analyze these numbers if you don't know what the courts looks like. Like, are you taking more risk? Yes. Is that deliberate or is that because the category of people that are low risk, you maxed out on that and the only available population for you now is a higher risk, right? That's, there is a lot of questions around this, around buy now, pay later. And also like credit risk is not static. So we went through two years of an exceptional environment from credit risk perspective because we had forced savings on people and we had governmental support. And the credit profile of people during this period is abnormal versus what was known before. We're entering another abnormal period for credit, right, with the current event. So what does your model expect is very hard to judge. So I think those, there was an amazing graph in Eklana, which is impossible to read to understand what they were trying to say around the other losses better or worse. Or unless you see the granular view, growth and, and default are very hard to evaluate. I think, but, but, but there is an open question around, have you maxed out on the number of users that can use buy an appellator with a low risk? And if that's the case, you're now entering higher risk population and what is the impact of that? And you're, and again, like that, those population are also at a higher risk of changing their risk profile when the economic situation is changing, right? So it's it's indeed super complex. It's not a great answer, but it's very complex. No, no, it's it's a complex complex topic. Claire, I think I'm going to come back to you to sort of close this one off. Um, you know, with with interest rates starting to go up again and so on. Do you think do you think we're going to see a sort of slowdown in the buy now pay later boom? Is the boom going to sort of come to an end or a bit of a crashing halt? What's your what's your instinct on how this might play out over the next year or two? I think that. It's unlikely that um, the consumer behavior is going to change now that it's embedded. Um, I think that the reality is we know that by now pay later tends to increase basket spend for customers. Um, and, you know, this is, this is something which, especially younger customers that are highly integrated to social media, for example, and the buying experience through social media, um, and through other sort of digital channels really expect that now. So I don't necessarily see it slowing down from a consumer demand point of view. 
I think that what for me is really interesting is how do we, you know, how do we think about providing that level of um, experience while helping customers to get better in control of the debt that they take and to manage that um, in a more, I, I hesitate to say responsible, but, you know, to help them to manage that in a more controlled way. Um, because I think, you know, at the moment around 50% of buy now, pay later is paid off on credit card. So that obviously then brings customers back into um, a traditional credit card model. Uh, it's also the case that, you know, when debt is very fragmented across a lot of different providers, it's difficult for customers to really understand, you know, what their exposure is. So I would really like to, and, you know, at Zopa, we we focus a lot through our credit card business on helping customers to get um, better in control of their borrowing. Um, and I would really like to see that become more of a focus. Yeah, me too. Um, more responsible approach to lending. Okay, let's move on to our, our last story. So if we were just talking about a, a pan-European fintech, we're now going to talk about a would-be pan-European fin- fintech, which is that the UK's free trade has um, got a green light for its European expansion. So free trade, which is a UK uh, retail investment platform, has announced it's intending to launch in Sweden, Klarna's home market. It will launch a closed beta for people signed up on the wait list in the coming months before rolling out to the general public. Swedish investors will have commission-free access to thousands of euros European um, and US stocks and exchange-traded funds, ETFs. Free Trade Sweden will also seek to offer local investors an ISK account in the coming months. And I have to admit, I don't know what an ISK account is. Um, free Trade is a comment. <laughs> comments uh, sending comments, please. Uh, free Trade is backed by over 10,000 crowdfunding investors from across Europe, including Sweden. Um, and in December 2021, Free Trade raised over £8 million, setting a number of records for the speed of the raise. So let's start with why Sweden? Um, Sim, what do you think? Why why Sweden? So I think Sweden is key because Sweden is one of Europe's key innovation hubs. You know, it's home to IKEA, uh, H&M, Volvo, and so many more companies. So I think Sweden has produced some of the world's most recognized companies. And just last year, so in 2021, that was a record year for Sweden's tech ecosystem. Um, Swedish startups raised a record of, I think, 7.8 billion in 2021, which was up 2.4 times on 2020 levels. And in addition to that, Sweden is a fertile breeding ground, right, for new tech unicorns. To date, Sweden has produced 35 unicorns, up from nine just five years earlier. So I think it completely makes sense that it would be Sweden. It's not the biggest country in Europe. I mean, it's not the smallest either. But, you know, there's there's not as many Swedes as there are, let's say, Germans. Um, do, is, this, is, is the retail investing boom going to last? Um, do we think... Uh, do we do we think that sort of either either recent political events or you know the, the sort of change in you know people's working habits and so on? Um, do we think retail investment booming is going to continue across Europe? Um, Jan, you're I think the the only sort of non-Brit European on the call. Uh, <laughs> um, I like behaviorally, yes. I think there is something about a younger generation deciding to handle investment themselves, um, having access to this new experience, making their own financial decision, whether it's equities, crypto. We see that across the board, right? We see a lot of adoption um, in terms of managing finance in a different way across Gen Z and a younger generation. 
what I can say as well is we see definitely volume um, fluctuates with the direction of the market. And so if the market's going up, you see a lot of volume. If the market's going down, you see volume drawing. Um, and I would expect the same. I mean, we've seen the Robidoon results are the public one, and we saw a large drops, um, drop in volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to distinguish the two. I think the behavior is easier to say. I think the gross rate of these companies is is a question mark in terms of the market environment drives a lot of that in my mind. Claire, I like your um, your customer centric perspective on, on, on these questions. Is 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 the democratization of investing sort of all good, um, or are there downsides? I mean, I, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, Zopra obviously has a long history, actually, as a peer to peer investment company as well. So that's um, that's sort of an interesting one for us in terms of being the first ever peer to peer investment offering. Um, I think that with interest rates as low as they are, it's inevitable that people are looking for better returns on their money. And, you know, I think that that is extremely valuable in terms of the role that investments can play in people creating financial security for themselves. So that's a good thing, I think, uh, if it's more accessible um, and easier to do, because it's often felt like something that's very complex, that sort of the um, I guess the provisor of you know a small club with with a lot of money. Um, I think the downside is when people are not necessarily aware of some of the risks that they're taking. And I mean, it, the term investment is obviously very broad, right? It encompasses everything from very low risk investment to extremely high risk investment. And so I think the important part is people understanding what their goals are, what type of investment might be right for them and being able to kind of judge um, to some level the the risk that they're taking and the role that that plays in their overall financial health and resilience. You know, what makes me nervous is when I see or hear of people um, using that for, you know, the only savings that they have, for example. You know, that's not a, a great place for people to be. So I think it has a, a great role to play, but um, consumers need to be aware of what that role is and how it fits with the rest of their financial landscape. And how does that work when we've got people sort of finding out about investing opportunities on, let, let's say, TikTok? Um, you know, is because there's a risk there, right? I mean, we do quite a lot of customer research interviews at, at, at 11FS. And, you know, I hear people talking about, you know, oh, I follow this guy on on on. TikTok or Telegram or whatever, and then they're investing in some sort of quite high-risk um, investments as a result. I mean, how how could or should the industry try and address that? I'm not really sure how I'm directing that question at. I don't know which one of you would like to have a weigh in on that one. I mean, I'm happy to have a stab. But I think that the industry needs to proactively step into those spaces because the reality is that, you know, the sort of... Um, let's say, the the people that are being irresponsible in those places or giving irresponsible advice will continue to do that. And I think if we, if the industry steps out, then essentially it just, we abandon it to become the wild west of of misinformation. So I think what's important is players um, accepting that that is where people are going for information, finding a way to step into that space, um, and then helping to drive uh, credible sources of information. 
And of course, that that relies on the customer being able to, you know, figure out the the fact from the fiction somewhat. But I think that's the case even in more established channels like Facebook, for example. You know, customers are used to, especially younger customers, having to make decisions about what credible information looks like. Um, and I think these new channels just take that to the next level. Well said. I, I think as well, like. There needs to be an evolution in how we approach this market. The same way in the 80s, you know, there was a massive push of phone brokerage. The Wolf of Wall Street is, you know, the TikTok of the time, right? It's the, the boiler room brokerage calling people, trading on penny stock. It's, it's a similar version. Now, the, the difficulty here is that on, you know, think about a TikToker that does that for a living um, in, in a criminal or nefarious way um, they get you know paid for views it's an indirect form of compensation but that the attractiveness for what they say come also from the fact that they're saying bad stuff I mean they're pushing user in a certain way so there is a notion that why well, it's not like a brokerage revenue if you gain followers by running this type of programs and you're compensated for that, there is a bad feedback loop happening. And that's the one that's very difficult to evaluate and to deal with because at the same time, there is a, an amount of understanding of people getting into high risk that's quite high as well. Like people also go, well, YOLO on a trade, but know about what they're doing as well, right? The, it's not that people are completely misunderstanding what's happening. It's also that there is an approach to risk that's slightly different as it was before. So it's very fascinating. Agreed. It is It is indeed fascinating. All right. Well, let's wish um, the best of luck to free trade and other responsible investing platforms that are trying to educate people about, about risk and risk and return in a, in a sensible way. Okay, so now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover but still deserve a a shout out. Sim, do you want to get us started? Yes, of course. So the first news story is that NatWest data shows that women overtake men in UK startup volumes. So NatWest's annual Rose Review revealed that women-led business growth overtook male-led business growth in the UK over the past year. And the data showed that more than 140,000 companies were established by all women teams last year. And that figure has grown by a third each year. So this is important because this marks the first time that the weighting has been in favour of women. And what's particularly impressive is the growth in companies created by young women aged between 16 and 25, which accounted for 14,000 of new businesses that emerged in the UK last year. And I think this is great because... It's especially ahead of International Women's Day next week, so it's fitting. But I think it's even more important because the data shows that more women than ever are starting new businesses. So hopefully that means that more financial institutions are committed to delivering change and funding when it comes to women-led businesses. But there are still challenges um, being posed by women's caring responsibilities. So despite this rapid growth in female-led startups, female entrepreneurs still spend twice as long on caring responsibilities during the pandemic compared to their male counterparts, according to that same study. And I think that's a big challenge and big problem to solve for. So I think it will be interesting to see the progress being made on that. Indeed. But still, it's nice to hear a statistic going in the right direction. All right. Um, Payhawk 
has become Bulgaria's first ever unicorn. So Payhawk, which is a London-based but Bulgarian-founded fintech, has raised an additional $100 million to extend its Series B funding round to $215 million, in the process becoming the first ever Bulgarian company to achieve unicorn status. Uh, Payhawk provides businesses with a unified platform for managing cards, payments, invoices, and expense management. It aims to further expand its product offering by introducing credit cards and allowing low-cost cross-border transactions on top of its invoice management system. The fresh capital will be used to grow Payhawk's product team by adding 60 additional senior software engineers in Sofia, with the aim of meeting growing customer demand for new features like mileage tracking and, and per diem in the light of the incremental return of business travel. So this is another fantastic story. Um, it's nice to have a happy story coming out of um, Central and Eastern Europe after given the focus earlier in the program. Um, but also, you know, really good confirmation of the importance of focusing on small businesses and the huge opportunities there um, to of serving those businesses better and giving them better solutions that help small businesses like the one Sim was just talking about um, to focus on their customers and get on with their business by giving them better financial apps and financial tools. Okay. Um, well, if you're looking for or interested in another financial services podcast to listen to in addition to ours, you might want to check out FinOps Today from corporate card platform Ramp. It's a new limited series featuring top CFOs and finance execs from a wide range of industries such as crypto and e-commerce. Definitely worth checking out at ramp.com or wherever you get podcasts. So, this is the part of the show where we would usually bring the panel back for an and finally story. But this week, we just wanted to end on a note of solidarity with those affected by the invasion of Ukraine. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is almost everyone I've met in fintech over the past decade has been trying to make the world a better place in big ways or small ways. You, know, you our listeners, our visionaries, evangelists, problem solvers, fixers and doers, um, Let's hope we can come together at this tremendously difficult time and work to make the, better, the world a better place and think about what little things we might be able to do to help those who are going through incredibly difficult times um, or maybe somehow help find a pathway forward to peace. So with that, we're going to wrap up. Um, our, our new show today. Thank you so much um, to today's guests. You've been fantastic. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Firstly, Claire, where can people find out more about you? Uh, my LinkedIn is actually the best place uh, because I tweet very infrequently. So um, yeah, Claire Gambardella on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you. Sim? People can find me on LinkedIn or at sim.ry at 11fs.com. And Jan? People can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at, uh, at techfin, tech underscore fin. You must be very, very early onto Twitter to get that. Um, <laughs> and as for me, I'm Benjamin Ensor. I'm on LinkedIn or 11fs.com. And thank you for listening. Um, please do join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye and stay safe.